as we enter into Daniel chapter 8, uh, we find yet this other vision. One thing that's unique about what's happening in these 14 verses is where it's all headed. You may have noticed as we got towards the end, there was a specific focus on what is called the sanctuary. And so we're going to consider the sanctuary situation today because that seems to be what the, the scripture text is pointing us to. Now, just to give you a little bit of historical background, not to dwell a lot on this, but I think it's helpful for us to see how things tie together. And I, again, I would encourage you, if you're jumping in today, to go back and start at the beginning of the series. It's available uh, by our podcast. It's also available on our website. Several different ways of doing that. Uh, because I took quite a bit of time in the very first message to do an overview of the book of Daniel to help us to see how it all fits together and where it's all headed and uh, the themes and so forth like that. But you may remember that uh, as we opened up the book of Daniel, we pointed out how it's actually written in different languages. If you were to open up a scroll, for instance. Now, I know we have our English Bibles, and so we don't see this. Uh, but in fact, where the Old Testament is typically written in Hebrew and the New Testament is typically written in Greek in its original form as the authors were led by God to put it down, Daniel uniquely is composed of two different languages, both Hebrew and Aramaic, uh, with Aramaic kind of being like the cream filling in the Oreo cookie, okay? Now I've lost you all, you're thinking about dessert, but... Uh, so at any rate, we're, we're coming back to uh, the, the Hebrew in chapter 8. I don't think it's just accidental. It's not like the writer of the book of Dan Daniel wasn't like, yeah, I think I'll try my hand at Aramaic. It's, it's really the focus of what's being talked about there, uh, Aramaic being the language of the Gentiles of the day, uh, Hebrew being the focus of the Jewish people. And, and so it's coming back to a, a distinctively Jewish focus now, it doesn't mean that it doesn't have application to all of us because we know it does. But I think we need to understand that the Lord is very intentional about even how he's crafting and putting the word of God together for us. So what's happening? What is, what is the time that we find ourselves historically in as we come to chapter 8? We're told it's the third year of Belshazzar. He is the, the final king, if you would of the Babylonian Empire. This would make it about 548 BC. Uh, he, therefore, uh, this is happening, what we're seeing in Daniel 8, and this can be kind of confusing, is happening prior to the Feast of Belshazzar that we read about in Daniel chapter 5. Okay? And so keep that in mind. That's very important because, you know, this isn't, chronology at this point, this is dealing with themes. And so we had the historical section, one through seven, and now as we're going in, or one through six, seven through the end of the, end of the book is going to be talking prophetically. So now Daniel, as the writer, is looking back and uh, in, in, in putting this in together for us. Belshazzar is actually, we know, overthrown by Darius the Mede, in 531, uh, the Medes and the Persians will merge together as empires. 
and Shushan that we read about here will ultimately be the capital of Persia under Cyrus the Great. Now, this vision that Daniel has is not totally unique because this vision that he has of this ram and of this goat really ties back together to some of the other visions that have already occurred in the Bible. So far, we've had three visions. First one was in Daniel chapter 2. It wasn't Daniel's vision. Anybody remember whose vision uh, was actually, uh, who, who was given the vision in Daniel chapter 2? Just say it out loud if you know it. Yeah, Nebuchadnezzar, the, the Gentile king, the pagan king. God's, he's not a God-fearing man, at least at this point. Uh, and yet, God is giving this to him. In this vision, he pictures a gigantic what? A statue, different metals. And, and we're not always told in the scripture what everything represents. But some things we are. For instance, later, God through Daniel in that chapter interprets that statue. And he specifically says, Nebuchadnezzar, you're that head of gold. And so we know that that head of gold represents the Babylonian Empire. And then you have the, the chest area of silver. Of course, it has the two arms, so it seems to have a duality to it. And then you go down to the loins area with the legs extending out of it. And that has a, a duality to it as, as well. So there's a multi-purpose-ness. Then you've got the iron uh, lower portion and feet. And we talked about how those are four different empires. Most likely looking at, we know Babylon because the Bible explicitly tells us that. Uh, then we see uh, the Medo-Persian Empire. Uh, Medes first, but the Persians come in together. And by the way, as you're reading your Bibles, you know, Esther fits in there, okay? She fits in into the Persian Empire as you're reading that. Uh, and then, of course, that's followed by the Grecian Empire, and then ultimately by Rome. And then, of course, you had the lower part of the statue with the iron mixed with clay, and we often refer to that as the revived Roman Empire. There's a gigantic stone that crashes into that area, and that stone then grows. That's the kingdom of Christ. That's futuristic even for us today. That's talking about the tribulation period, we believe, and about Christ's kingdom on earth and his reign. We then come to Daniel chapter 7, and Daniel's given a vision that correlates to Nebuchadnezzar's vision Four parts, but they're beasts. Maybe showing how God sees the, the reign of mankind, the empires of mankind. They're hideous uh, in reality, where man sees himself as glorious and sparkling and valuable. And yet, each kind of represents. You had that lion, and that was one of the figures that Babylon had chosen for itself, even a winged lion. Uh, and so, kind of corresponds to the head. And then, you move down and you have this bear that's kind of lopsided, right? And, and so that's talking about how uh, it, it had kind of a leaning uh, to one side because it was Medo-Persian and that which is latter is more weighty. Uh, and then, of course, you had the leopard with the four heads after that. And then you had that hideous beast, which we took quite a bit of time talking about uh, last Lord's Day as well. So then now in chapter 8, we have a vision of two different animals, not beasts, but, you know, ordinary animals that you would see 
uh, on daily life. Nothing particularly unusual about them other than uh, the horns that comes up in the goat area. So Daniel has this vision of a ram that is being attacked by, we would say today, a billy goat, right? Uh, the, the, the goat that's being attacked here. Um, you know, and it's interesting. I, I don't know in normal life which one would ordinarily best the other. Uh, ram, rams that they're talking about in the Bible, you know, you don't think about a sheep being able to take on a, on a goat, uh, but the ram has those really massive horns to it uh, and probably more of the mountainous kind of rams that you sometimes see in National Geographic uh, in that way. But they're going head to head. The ram probably representing Medo-Persian empire and the goat representing the empire of Greece. We didn't read this far, but if you look down at chapter 20, uh, we're actually told this very explicitly. This is one of those areas where we're told. It says, the ram which thou sawest, having two horns, are the kings of Media and Persia. And then in verse 21, and the rough goat is the king of Grecia. And the great horn that is between his eyes is the first king. So very clearly, we're given some uh, clarity about what's going on here. The goat's great horn speaks of a star commander. And who was the star? Who was the you know, initial leader that came in and made his debut? Well, it was Alexander the Great. Okay? Uh, that's what's going on here. By the way, you, you see a pattern here that the the, the animals or the creatures typically represent the empires or the governments. And then there are horns or various elements that either the beast have in Daniel 7 or that these uh, animals have here in chapter 8 that represent the individual leaders that uh, make up and comprise uh, the empire as well. We know that as he's looking at this vision, that that singular horn, so it, at start this goat's kind of like maybe a unicorn, whether it has additional horns, but it does have this one protruding horn. So it almost, to me, we're given the idea of a unicorn-looking creature at this point. But that gives way to four other horns. And what happens in history, as we look back at the Grecian Empire, really lines up with exactly what this is talking about here. These four horns represent the four generals that are going to succeed Alexander. And we, we already talked a little bit about this when we were looking at the four creatures in the last chapter. But this is what's different here, and this is where we're kind of going to spend our focus on. Those four horns give way to yet another horn. So we start off with one horn, and then there's four horns. Uh, some believe that the, the one horn is coming specifically more out of one of the existing horns based on uh, what happens. But who does this latter singular horn represent? And it's very interesting as we line up with what's being described here about the activities of this leader that is represented by, represented by this horn, that we find a character in history past, but it would be future for Daniel at this point, and is a man by the name of Antiochus. 
Later, he will, he will take on the additional name Epiphanes. But at first, he's just called Antiochus. Who was he? Well, he was a Greek king. He was one of, of the leaders of the Seleucid Empire. And that was one of the regions, one of the four regions that was divvied up after Alexander passed away and the four generals then took over those, those realms. So Antiochus comes out of that, Syriac, uh, that Syrian region. When he takes on the name Epiphanes, you need to understand that it literally means illustrious one. You know, the, these guys were not bashful about tooting their own horn, by the way. Okay? Um, or another way of translating what Epiphanes meant uh, in the Aramaic was God manifest. So he's really ascribing a level of deity to himself. By the way, that's nothing new. You go all the way back into the early part of our Old Testament where you have a pagan leader such as Pharaoh and you really get one of the first looks at a massive empire led by a very uh, arrogant leader that took upon himself deity because Pharaohs uh, all looked at themselves and led their people to look at themselves as gods. And if you get into Egyptology, you find out that that had a lot to do with how they're buried in the pyramids and things like that, and believing in the afterlife that they're going on to rule and so forth like that. But So this is nothing new. By the way, man is always striving to be like the Most High. I mean, it goes right back to the Garden of Eden when Satan lays the trap for Eve and then ultimately for Adam through Eve as well. You know, oh, you will not really die. You know, do you really think that you don't have immortality? Do you think that this one act that God has the ability to draw back from you that which you have right now? You know, when you eat, God knows that your eyes will be opened and you'll be like him, right? You'll what he's really saying is you will come to a level of, of deity, of divine standing, if you do this. And so it's no, no surprise, because that's actually the thing that pulled Lucifer in as well. He's like, I will be like the Most High. I will ascend, you know. And, and so we still have that. By the way, folks, that is one of the fundamental problems in the human soul today. You know, people have a hard time coming to Christ as their Savior. And sometimes I hear Christians who are believers often say, I don't understand, you know? I mean, I'm so thankful that I'm a Christian. I am so thankful that Jesus saved me from my sin. Uh, why wouldn't my neighbor, why wouldn't my coworker? why wouldn't the waitress that I speak to every so often when I go to my favorite restaurant, why wouldn't these people just jump at the chance to have their sins washed away and to have a home in heaven I mean, it's all great, right? And, and one of the, the foundational reasons that the human soul really struggles against that is not because of what's being offered, but because of what has to be surrendered. Because we're all under the illusion that we are little gods, that we have control of our life. And by the way, it is a delusion, you know? I mean, we think, I am the captain of my fate, right? 
And you may be able to say, I like making my choices. I like being able to go where I go and have the friends I want to have. If I get saved, you know, then Jesus is Lord of my life. And I don't know if I want to surrender that to him. Well, you know, there's coming a day where every knee is going to bow. And really, even right now, you know, when you think that you're controlling your life, God's still sovereign over what's going on in your life, even now. But we, we need to look at someone like this, and rather than set them aside of saying, wow, what a really uh, off-the-chart, pegging-the-meter-of-egotism-and-pride sort of fellow this Antiochus fellow is. Instead, we sort of need to take a long look in the mirror and say, you know what? I, I get too full of myself sometimes as well. I'm not really that much different than someone like this, except for the Lamb of God, except for the forgiveness of sin and the new life that I have in Christ. And so he's a natural man who receives not the things of the Spirit of God, is basically what we have in Antiochus. And so he's going to elevate himself in this way. But here, and, and we'll come back to this in future uh, messages as we continue to progress in the uh, book of Daniel and we get into what's called the 70 weeks but we're sort of given a little head nod and a little uh, upfront intro to what is going to be coming in a single act of brazen disrespect Antiochus is going to raid the temple in Jerusalem he's going to steal all the treasures He's going to set up in its place an altar for Zeus, and he's going to sacrifice a swine on the altar. Why a swine? Because that is an in-your-face move at the Jewish people, because he knew that that was an unclean animal. And so he's, he's doing this in defiance, right? That's what verse 11 is talking about here. Notice it says, Yea, he magnified himself even to the prince of the host. In other words, he, in his mind and his heart, he's, he's looking towards the heavens and, and challenging God, so to speak. Kind of reminds me of the cosmonaut that first orbited into outer space and looked out the portal of his space capsule and as an atheist said, I am up here in the heavens and I'm looking out, and I'm paraphrasing here, and I don't see God, right? You rem might remember that happening. And, you know, and, and yet some people are like, how did God just not strike him dead at that moment? You know, Well, God's not obligated to react to the foolishness of man. It, that would really make God more of a puppet if God sort of felt due to respond with a lightning bolt you know, at every single person that stepped out of line, so to speak. And, and then the other point is, who would be left, right? <laughs> who would be left? Uh, and so uh, this guy is going, going to do this. And, and seemingly, you know, as, I mean, you, if you ask yourself, what would be the most brazen, the most desecrating thing, uh, you know, a human could do in the face of God? And, and he's taking it on, basically. Now this is, for Daniel, as we're reading this in chapter 8, this hasn't happened yet. He's being told that it's going to happen. As we continue uh, to kind of make ourselves understand this, 
and we're speculating a little bit here, but when you, when you see these puzzle pieces to go, kind of like doing a Sudoku puzzle, you know, I don't know that that's a two, but it, it can't be a three or four or six, so therefore it must be a two, you know, type thing. Um, so the pleasant land, well, everything else seems to be fitting together. So most commentators believe that that's a reference to Israel. Um, actually, in your Bibles, you might notice that the word land is in italics. So that has been provided for context. It's just really the pleasant place. It could be pinpointing specifically the city of Jerusalem where the temple was. And then uh, we see that in the next verse, chapter, uh, verse 10, it talks about how he's going to be stomping on the stars and stomping them to the ground, if you would. Well, what could this mean? Well, some point it might refer to believers. Any basis for that? Well, if you look over at chapter 12 and verse 3, and this is coming yet still, but this isn't the only place where the saints are pictured as stars. We know that even Joseph in the book of Genesis had a vision and pictured um, his, uh, his brothers and so forth like that, the future patriarchs in the form of stars and angelic uh, celestial bodies, if you would. But notice it says in chapter 12, verse 3, and they that be wise, and of course that's not just you're smart, it's talking about a godly wisdom that comes along from uh, having God inside of you, shall shine as the brightness of the firmament, and they that turn many to righteousness, so there's definitely a, a work of people here that is helping affect people who are not righteous to turn to righteousness. By the way, that's a, that's a great verse for, for soul winning and witnessing that's being talked about here as far as our opportunities. But how are those people pictured? The people that are turning many to righteousness are described as what? Stars, right? You'll, you'll shine like the stars forever and ever. So very likely not a stretch to be looking at verse 9 of Daniel chapter 8 and saying, okay, someone's coming into the pleasant area, nothing more pleasant to the Jewish people than the city of Zion, and the stars, those that are the representation of the truth in Jehovah, the only true uh, believers, uh, these are like the shining stars, and so someone's coming after them, yet still. When the Jews express their outrage over the profaning of the temple, when Antiochus does this, what does Antiochus do? He responds by slaughtering a great number of these Jews and selling others into slavery. Well, that lines up very well with this stamping down uh, whatever these stars are. So what can we say about Antiochus? This is just a great history lesson because for us today, though this was prophetic at the time that Daniel 8 was being given to Daniel, uh, now, if it's Antiochus, it's all in the past, right? Um, faith and confidence that God's word comes to pass just as he says it does. And that's worth its weight in gold, isn't it? Over and over again. What does that help me and you do in our daily life? We're constantly be faced with situations where we don't know what's next. We don't know what's ahead. Things are going to happen 
that fall out of the purview of our expectations. I thought this is what was going to happen today. I got up today and I was headed into the week and I was, had my calendar all laid out, my itinerary. Then this happened. I was not expecting that to happen. You know, we've been praying for one of our, our sisters uh, in the Lord here in the church, you know, Susan Wood, you know, the other day, boom, all of a sudden, blood pressure shoots through the roof, you know, goes in, determines that, oh, you're having kidney issues, all this is going on. That was not on her itinerary. She got up that morning, you know, and, and, and we have these things, and we typically only really notice or only really log it in our thinking when it's something out of our comfort zone. I mean, if it falls into our comfort zone, we don't be like, Lord, what are you doing sending me an extra thousand dollars in my tax return I was not expecting? I am not braced for this kind of stuff, Lord, right? I mean, do we say, Lord, you're just going to have to give me grace. You know, I've got to call some friends and ask them to pray for me, right? We don't respond that way, right? But, you know, uh, we, we have something else. You know, cars breaking down, you know, loss of job, whatever it is. And, and, and it's expected, right? I'm not saying that we, we shouldn't, you know, be, we should be hard on ourselves because we naturally work that way. The point is, we don't know what's ahead. So when the things that throw us for a loop happen, you know, the best thing for us to do is go back and see the record of a faithful God who has said, and this shall come to pass, and it came to pass, right? And say, that's still the same God that I'm praying to. That's still the same Heavenly Father that has me in His hand. Uh, even if it's tragic circumstances like this is, and we're not applauding Antiochus because he will be judged, he is being judged, by the way, for his wickedness, for his pagan behavior, for his atrocities, not just against the Jewish people, but against God himself. And nobody gets away with it. Antiochus is a little bit more, perhaps, for us than just a historical figure, though, because as we saw last week, sometimes the things that actually happen and the text in the Old Testament is pointing to might have a little bit of a head nod to something yet still to come. And many commentators, and I would agree with them, suggest that Antiochus is sort of a foreshadowing of the Antichrist of the tribulation period, and that is still future for us. That seven-year period of time, and we know that there's going to be an Antichrist, and he's going to come in to Israel at one point. He's going to target Jerusalem. He's going to target the, the temple that, by the way, in this case, he himself commissioned to be rebuilt uh, to give sort of a false uh, treaty with the Israelites for three and a half years. But ultimately, he's going to have an abomination there. He's going to uh, set up an image there uh, to himself to be worshipped in that way. And so, again, we see the masterfulness of God uh, laying out events and history past and history future as a divine author 
of just writing the story. Some people have said, you know, you talk about history as his story. Well, it really is true, but even the future is his story. The Bible tells us God knows the end from the very beginning. Why? Because he's sovereign over it. As we continue to think about this character and go back to historical aspects of Antiochus, just to help you put things in perspective, remember Solomon built the first temple, right? It gets destroyed when Nebuchadnezzar comes in under the Babylonian Empire. But then there is, in the book of Ezra, the going forth of a man named Zerubbabel who begins the rebuilding of the temple. And that happens around 520 B.C. and is completed approximately in two years, give or take. We're not really pinpointing that exactly. So you need to understand as we're coming to this point that we're in what we call the the second temple period, the temple of Ezra. The Jews would worship here for several centuries before they're assaulted. So, you know, uh, Zerubbabel goes back. Nehemiah is going to go back. The Jews go back into the land. Okay, this is still yet happening in the future of all of that based on the time frame that we're given. And then they're going to be assaulted. In other words, there's more time that's going to happen between the second temple being rebuilt and Antiochus Epiphanes showing up on the scene than the United States of America has experienced as a nation even at this point. And that's a lot of time. The sanctuary, uh, there's then mentioned in verse 14, this 2,300 days, 2,300 days. It spans the time from Daniel's vision, which happens in 171 B.C., and, you know, not to insult anyone's intelligence, but remember when you're before Christ, the bigger numbers of years are older, and as you get to lower numbers, you're getting newer just the opposite of the way we work now, okay? So sometimes that throws us off. So the 520 B.C. rebuilding was centuries before we have now 171 of Daniel's vision. And then you have the death of Antiochus Epiphanes that historically is labeled around 164 B.C., tabulated up in days. It fits very nicely. There are some commentators that want to disagree with that uh, because it talks about the cleansing of the temple and not specifically the death of Antiochus. But really, there was an inability to move forward as long as Antiochus remained on the scene as a leader. And so the sanctuary of the Jews began to be cleansed following the death of Antiochus. But let's talk about this sacred space. Because that's really what I want to drive out here as we come more to the end of what we're talking about here. The temple is sacred space. Why? Because it represented for the Jewish people the presence of God. Before we had a brick and mortar, if you would, temple, they had a tent, the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, commissioned by God to Moses. And it moved around. It was mobile, right? Because the children of Israel were mobile. They were wandering in the wilderness at that time. But you had the courtyard, and you had all the things that were there. And then you had the the tent in the middle of the courtyard. 
and only the priest could go there inside the tent, and only the high priest could go into the inner holy of holies, and there you had the ark, the mercy seat sat on top of it, the cherubim, and above that was what? The presence of God, right? And so, rightly so, you know, the presence of God. And hey, if it was time for the camp of Israel to move, you know, the cloud over that area would move, or the pillar of fire, if it was night, would move. And so, you know, it's easy for us to understand the depicting in the mind and attaching the presence of God, the specialness of that place. You know, God's in there, so to speak. And we know in our theology what? God's everywhere. He's omnipresence. Even David knew that. Whither shall I go from thy spirit? Okay? I can't flee from your presence. You know, you're everywhere. So, you know, we know that they understood, you know, good theologically grounded believers, even in the Old Testament, understood God wasn't confined to just that one spot above the ark in that holy place. But nonetheless, it was sacred space. And because of that, because God had ordained it that way, don't you know that the one that hates God most is going to target that? Satan will always target the place where God connects with his people. Just let that sit into your brain a little bit. Satan will always target where God wants to connect with his people. Folks, there has always been spiritual warfare for humanity, for believers, for saints. It happened in the Old Testament, happened in the New Testament, it's happening right now in our church age. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness of this world. We have to take on the armor of God to do that. But you know, today, and I don't, I don't correct people, and I'm not getting on you, and, and, and I say this sometimes myself, you know, but this room that we're sitting in right now, sometimes people refer to this as a sanctuary. And in a manner of speaking, it's not entirely wrong to say that because you know, we are gathering together, two or three, and we're two or three together, there is the presence of God in a very special way. But I tend, tend to like to refer to this more as just an auditorium because if we were to go across the street into a clearing and start singing and praying as the church, that would be sacred space in that same way that this is, okay? But you know where the real sanctuary is today? It's not in a physical edifice. It's not in a structured building. Paul wrote to the Corinthian believers because the Corinthian believers were struggling with really living in a Christ-honoring way. Even though they were saved, they were still allowing a lot of worldliness in their life. You know, they were trying to serve two masters, if we could put it that way. They were allowing immorality, you know, they were mixed up when it came to how they looked at spiritual gifts. They were even being fleshly about the exercise of their spiritual gifts. They were quenching the Spirit of God, and he says, you know, fundamentally, he wanted them to know this. Know ye not, 1 Corinthians 3.16, know ye not that ye, you, personally, are what? The temple of God. So what, is that, what was that supposed to mean to them? The very presence of deity abides inside of you. Wherever you go, God goes. 
Whatever you subject your mind and eyes to, you subject ultimately the Spirit of God to. Know ye not that ye are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. And he doesn't just mention it here. When he comes back later to the Corinthians and is dealing with the issue of morality because there was a problem with uh, fornication, shacking up, if we would, in today's terminology, living together outside of marriage, prostitution. This, was, this immorality was happening, at least in some measure, by professing believers in the church. And he's like, you know, don't you know? If, hey, if you join yourself to someone like a prostitute, someone that's you know, not your spouse, that it's not just a choice about your own body. And even if you just say, I'm, I'm going to only do it with one person and I'm going to be committed to this person, hey, that doesn't really change anything because you haven't united in one flesh as God originally had ordained it. And he said, the problem is you're thinking it's your body. It's my decision. Right? And when we hear that, my body, my choice, we typically think of a whole different issue, don't we? We think of the abortions. But that fundamental thinking starts earlier on about stewardship of this. And it, and it, it isn't just a side issue where, you know, well, it's more important of, you know, my heart. God looks on the heart. Yes, he does look on the heart. But you, you behave and your activities that affect your heart are intertwined inextricably with all outward behavior. So God cares what we eat. God cares who we're with. God cares what we watch, what we listen to. It's all activities of the body. But remember, the body is what houses the Spirit of God. This is why he says in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, what? Here comes this, you know, almost unbelievable question. You know, I can't believe I'm asking this, Paul's saying. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you. The Holy Ghost is in you, which ye have of God. God has given you the Holy Spirit, meaning the Father. And ye are not what? Say it again. You are not what? I don't own me. I'm responsible for me. But that's why it's good to say this is a stewardship. Right? As I enter into every day, this is a stewardship. And it's a hard stewardship, folks. Right? Because we have urges and inclinations. And you have them. And you do have some comfort that no temptation takes you but such as is common to man. However, God is faithful. And he is not willing to let you suffer above what you're able. He will always give a way of escape. Why? Because he understands. That it's not just about you succeeding, about having your best life ever. It's because he has embedded part of himself in you. He's imparted the third entire person of the Trinity to live inside of you. God is inside of you. That needs to grip us every day. 
And so in a manner of speaking, as you're reading Daniel chapter 8, you're thinking, oh, there's this horrible desecration. The Jews are enraged at what this Antiochus is doing. We need to stop and say, but Lord, am I guilty? Is it I? Because you abide in me. I'm a temple. Am, am I Antiochus? Am I making willful choices that brings a desecration to where your presence abides? How dare I? Right? How dare I do that? We, we need to be incensed with our own fleshly behavior when we pick up on it. So what's the takeaway? Well, we see historically two superpower governments collide, right? Ram and goat. We see Medo-Persia going up against the Grecian Empire. One usurps the other by superior strength and hostile takeovers. That's what's happening here. That is the picture that the Word of God is trying to give to us in these empires. Future for Daniel, past tense for us. We can read it in our history books, exactly how that happened. Forward, we see that powerful nations often have egomaniacal leaders that are driven by self-promotion. You know, all of them were that way. Didn't start with Alexander the Great, right? You know, Darius. I mean, he, he was very full of himself. I mean, he's like, hey, I was able to lead a, a, a penetration of the, most strong, the strongest city of the world, the Babylon, you know? And we talked a little bit about that. I mean, he was patting himself on the back the rest of his life until he aged out, died, and so forth like that. Alexander comes on the scene. He's the great one, right? By the way, when we come into the New Testament, we meet a man named Herod who also self-styles himself as Herod the Great, another wicked man responsible for the infanticide of thousands of children uh, in the land of Bethlehem. And so we see these powerful nations often have egomaniacal leaders that are about, built on self-promotion and they're ruthless in accomplishing their goals. Why do we need to know that? Don't be surprised. There's more of them coming. We have them right now, don't we? Look in the news. We need to be incredulous when we see, you know, the, the seeming lack of care for human life. All for what? Position, power, posturing yourself, natural resources. And you're willing to take out schools of children. You're willing to blow up buses of civilians that are trying to flee for their own life. You know, we have tyrannists on our planet. Some of them are under the shroud of religion, saying, well, we're doing this in the name of Allah. Whatever it is, it all comes down to a very arrogant, prideful spirit that is honoring Satan. We also know that there never seems to be any lack of diabolical rulers to follow after one passes off the scene, right? You know, hope you're awake in history class. You don't get it a lot of times unless you're getting a Christian worldview as you go through history. And I'm, I'm thankful for the times that I was able to, to have teachers 
point out to me. It's like, now look what happens here. And another one shows up on the scene. And another one shows up on the scene. And this is going to continue time and time again. We know when the last ruthless, egomaniacal ruler will be on planet Earth. And we know how Jesus takes care of him. But there's still more to come, folks. How many more? We don't know. The question is, what would the Lord have us to do? This text takes us right to the sacred space. The concern is about the sacred space, right? That's what the believers in Daniel's day were concerned about. That's what they're going to be concerned about in Zerubbabel's day. And as believers, that's what we need to be concerned about. And I'm not talking about our building at 3300 Highway 50 in Little River. I'm talking about this right here. Your life, your body, your choices, but your stewardship. Don't neglect the sacred space of God's sanctuary within you as a believer. For the time being, this is our primary concern. Don't be so overly concerned about what Russia's doing, even what's happening in the Middle East, because quite frankly, unless you get a phone call from Mossad or from the CIA or from some organization, probably none of us are going to have input as a steward on what's happening on the world scenes. We know enough to pray for Israel, right? We know enough to pray for God to raise up the right kind of leaders. We're told to pray for those that are in leadership. And that we need to be doing. But when it comes to the nitty-gritty, what do I need to be concerned about? Look in the mirror, folks. How am I walking? How am I taking care of sacred space? I am a saint because of the Lamb of God. And he has given me a primary job, this. And you get a fresh opportunity every day. Exciting. You've blown it, we all have. His mercies are new every day. Great is thy faithfulness. But don't lose sight of what your primary objective and goal is. Sacred space where the Holy Spirit resides right now. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for the look back, the demonstration of faithfulness, of seeing that which you foretold has in fact come to pass, the foreshadowing of that which is yet to come, and knowing the glorious outcome of how Jesus will indeed handle all matters and that even the most flagrant disregard of deity will be put under Christ's footstool someday. There are those that have stomped and will stomp on God's people, but we know that there will be an utter raking into the lake of fire someday, all who have not come to Christ as their Savior. And so, Father, help us to not be distracted from what our primary objective is as your child. Help us to treasure the presence of the Spirit of God inside of us. Help us to be cautious about this sacred space. Help us to enjoy the power and the influence and the guidance and the strength that is ours, knowing that if we will walk in that spirit, we will not fulfill the lust of the flesh, 
victory is ours. And so, Lord, may we not quench the spirit, but may we yield and enjoy the presence of being priest unto you of our own sacred space. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.